Boy, you quieted down so quick. John chapter 11, if you would turn there in your Bibles, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we're going to finish chapter 11 today. So, John 11. Look at verse 38. It says, Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb, It was a cave and a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who was dead came out, bound, hand and foot, with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with cloth Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. And Father, we pray that as we look at these verses and the verses that follow, as we always pray, I always pray, Lord, that you would give us insight, that you would please help us to draw application from the text, Lord. Lord, your word is not boring. Your word is alive. Your word is not some simply ancient script of historical things, but it is pertinent, it is applicable for your believers today. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would give us a greater understanding of your scriptures. And in doing so, Lord, that you would build our faith, because we need our faith to be developed, strengthened. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something about death, you know, it's, uh, it, uh, I guess it depends on who's, who died and the conditions. And um, my mother um, was the last one in our family. No, no, no. Boy, my, my, uh, my sequence is out here. Um, Tracy's dad went home to be with the Lord. And for Tracy's dad, he had uh, dementia. Um, and so, you know, it's sad because they're almost gone before they're gone. And so when they finally go, if they know the Lord, you rejoice in that. Um, my mother, she had lung cancer. And so she was definitely, you know, just kind of slowly but surely uh, perishing. And, and on the day that she died, you know, there was sadness, but there was also some relief. You know, I mean, you say, I'm glad she's not suffering any longer. Lazarus, we have no idea what his condition was. We know that he was sick. Jesus told the disciples that his sickness was not unto death. We don't know how old he was. Was he a teenager? I mean, the scripture doesn't tell us. Was he a young man? There's, there's no mention of the parents of mom and dad, so we could kind of conclude that 
the parents were no longer around, but there were the, the three of them, the sisters and, and Lazarus, and there they are now facing death. In fact, as we read in our text, Lazarus had been dead for four days, and, um, and there's something that just, it, it, sometimes it just feels so hollow. It, it just seems so sad, just... Uh, but there they are at the tomb. And Jesus commands them to roll away the stone from the mouth of the tomb. And could you imagine the, uh, <laughs> the tension, the drama as it was building? You know, we see that there was protest from Martha. Lord, no, don't, don't take the stone away. By this time, there's a stench. He's been dead for four days. This is disgusting. Isn't it bad enough that he's gone, you know? And G Jesus, of course, he said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now, guys, if we were paying attention, if we're diligent uh, Bible students, and I suggest that every follower of Jesus should be a diligent Bible student. We're not idle. We're not just you know, come feed me, pastor, you know. But we're doing our due diligence. We're studying the scriptures on our own. If, if we're paying attention, we need to stop and say, well, when did Jesus say to her, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? I mean, it's not in our text. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't say it. Obviously, Jesus did say it, but it's not in our text. But you know, it is seen in John chapter 11 and verse 4 when Jesus was speaking to the disciples. He said to them, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus, he says to her, in essence, I was thinking about that as we were singing some of our worship songs, especially that last worship song. I don't know, it just kind of kept running through my mind. Watch believe. See what I'm doing. Believe, believe, believe. We need our faith to be strengthened in the time in which we live. So, of course, they obeyed him. They took away the stone from its place. And we see Jesus, he simply looks up to heaven and he begins to pray to the Father. You know, um, there are so many traditions and I'm not saying they're bad things. They're just, it's just interesting. You know, if I was to say, let's pray for a moment. All of us in this room would naturally close our eyes and bow our heads. It's a traditional thing. It's not a biblical thing. Biblically, they would always, with eyes open, look up. Sometimes lift up their hands. I mean, they're aware of the surroundings around them. We close our eyes because we don't want to be distracted by the things around us. But Jesus, he, he looks up into heaven. He prays to the Father, not for his benefit, but for the benefit of the people that were gathered there so that they might know that Jesus was sent by the Father. And then, and then he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, you know... Um, You've heard Bible teachings, no, no doubt, you know, if you've been around church for any amount of time and, and you've studied this text for any amount of time, you know uh, that commentators or Bible teachers will always say, if Jesus did not 
if he did not say, Lazarus, come forth, if he just simply commanded, come forth, then all of the dead from all of the graves would have come forth. And we say that, and, and sometimes we might think, that's just something we say, we don't really mean it. But you know that that's actually based on scripture. So this is one that we get right. Jesus had said earlier on in John's gospel account, in John chapter 5, verse 28, he says, For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. See, that's a biblical thing. So you say, well, do you think that Jesus was speaking in John chapter 5 of the raising of Lazarus? No, I don't. I think that the raising of Lazarus from the death from the dead was an opportunity to kind of show a foreshadow of what was coming. What's coming, I believe, the fulfillment of what Jesus spoke in John chapter 5 and verse 28 is what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and, and verse 16, excuse me. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Now, you might say, oh, wait a minute, Dan. You've got to read a little bit further. With the shout, with the voice of an archangel. So the shout, obviously, was the voice of the archangel. Is that what it says? It actually says that three, three things take place. With the voice, uh, with the shout, the Lord will come with a shout. Then there will be a voice of an archangel. And then there will be a trumpet sound. So there's actually three things. Are all of them speaking of one thing? Or are they all separate things? The time's coming, and I think it's close, when Jesus is going to come, and when he shouts, come forth. It's like what we see in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, I was listening to someone recently. It's the most symbolic book of the Bible. It's the most symbolic book of the Bible. It's the most symbolic book of the Bible. No, it's not. There's symbolism in the book of Revelation. But if you know the Old Testament, you appreciate the book of Revelation because there's some 400 to possibly 600 idioms or references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, it's not just this book that's kind of thrown together that no one could understand. This is why so many of God's people are cheated because they say, you know, people, pastors will even say, stay away from the book of Revelation. It's like, oh, oh, no, I went too far back. I went past Jude. I'm back in Revelation. It's scary. No. There's a chronological order. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, Jesus is unveiled. Write the things you've seen, chapter 1. And the things which are the letters to the seven churches. The seven churches, as you study them, they speak of church history from the apostolic church to the last day's church. And the things that will take place after this, the things that take place after the church age. It's interesting, we have the tool, you know, the pattern in, in which we're to study the book of Revelation, and many times we don't even bother to read it. Between the church and then chapter 5 of Revelation, where we see the scene in heaven, we have chapter 4. And there was a voice that said, come up here. I think that the Lord was showing us right there, the rapture of the church. 
When Jesus comes, he calls the church, and the dead will rise first, and then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Well, that's a teaching for another time. So Lazarus, he comes forth. He's alive, but he's bound. He's bound, he's wrapped, his head, is, his face is wrapped with a cloth, and, uh, and his, his, he's, he's bound from, <laughs> from hand to foot. Think of that. When you read the scriptures, you think of that. How, how did he get out? It would be like, have you ever been in a mummy bag? Mummy bags are the most uncomfortable things, you know. I mean, they work if you're out in the really cold elements, but, but they're uncomfortable. But it's like a mummy bag, you know. Your feet are close together. Your legs are close together. And you, you kind of imagine, how did he, did he, did he hop out? You know, come out, Lazarus. And there he's hopping out. Do you know that Charles Spurgeon, he wrote about this. He said that, quote, some of the old writers thought that he glided, as it were, through the air, and that this was part of the miracle. But Spurgeon said, I think that he may have been so bound that though he could not freely walk, yet he could shuffle along like a man in a sack. You say, why are you reading such things? Because I believe that what we're reading here has a lesson for us today, that's pertinent for us today. When I look at Lazarus, this man who is alive, he's fully alive. He wasn't partially alive. He was fully alive, but he was bound with the grave clothes uh, of death. And I think, well, that's, that's a description of us, biblically speaking, before we come to faith in Christ. We're alive, but we're spiritually dead. We are dead men walking. We sang it this morning. I, I was thinking of, you know, whenever we sing songs that talk about hell. I know that in the church today, modern day Christians, oh, we've, we've evolved so much. Congratulate yourself that we no longer believe in a literal hell. We believe that there will be a final annihilation. We come up with our reasons. They're not biblical reasons. They're more emotional reasons. We never stop and wonder, what in the world are we saved from if in the end everything is annihilated? Or universalism, if everyone is saved, what are we saved from? What are we really saved from, you know? And we don't think through the scriptures. But Lazarus, he's alive, he's bound, he's, he's wrapped up. Remember when Jesus... Um, was resurrected from the dead. Um, they come into the tomb, and there they find his grave clothes are over to one side, and then the cloth that was around his head. They would tie the head so that the jaw doesn't open. And uh, they found that cloth that was around his head. It was folded very meticulously, and it was placed in another location. I'll tell you, there's a lesson in that as well. Everything that we read in the scripture should grab our attention. We say, what meaneth thou by these things? I mean, there, there's a meaning behind all of these things. And I think heaven, part of the joy of heaven is going to be that we'll be in the presence of the Lord and we will understand fully and we'll say, oh, I get that now. I understand that now. Oh, that scripture makes so much sense now. But uh, Jesus, of course, he didn't need his grave clothes. He would never need his grave clothes ever again. Lazarus would need them again because Lazarus would once again experience death. But Lazarus 
on this day he's alive, he comes forward, he's free. In fact, he was told, they were told, loose him and let him go. I think of many believers today, you know, guys, the scriptures have much to say about the believer. In fact, the scriptures are written to believers. Do you know that there is no book of the Bible that's written to a non-believer? All the books of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation are written to believers. There's that first Fleshalonians, you know. You might find that in some... No, I'm teasing you. There's nothing written to the non-believer, though the non-believer could read the scriptures and come to faith in Christ because of the light of the scriptures, because of the Holy Spirit using the word of God and speaking to the non-believer of his or her importance of surrendering the life to the Lord. But everything we read in the scriptures for believers. In the Old Testament, it was believing Israel. In the New Testament, it's believing the believing church. And you look and you consider all the things that are promised us. We are free. We are free indeed. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We are once dead, but now we're alive. We're, we're set free from the bondage of sin. We're no longer slaves to, to sin. Therefore, reckon yourself. You know, we're, we're supposed to do certain things with this knowledge that we have from the scriptures. And yet there are many believers. They may be even alive in Christ, but they still kind of, you know, <laughs> shuffle through life. We're not taking hold of the victory that we really have in Christ. Let me read a scripture to you, Isaiah 40, verse 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. The word weary means to not gasp, to not be exhausted, to not tire. And the verse goes on to say, they shall walk and not faint. Some may protest and say, well, Dan, that's the Old Testament. That really doesn't apply to us. Remember, I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that the book of Isaiah is like the Bible in miniature. You know, the first uh, 39 verses of Isaiah are like the first 39 books, the Old Testament, of our Bibles. They speak of judgment. They speak of sin. They speak of the importance of repentance. And then you get to verse 40 of Isaiah, and the last 27 books of, or, or, excuse me, chapters of Isaiah are like the last 27 books of the Bible. They speak of salvation. They speak of Christ. Where do we find Christ in the book of Isaiah? Well, immediately in verse 40 of Isaiah. And as you read this and you say, well, this is applicable to me, this applies to me as a Christian, that if I'm waiting upon the Lord, he will renew my strength. I will, I will go from strength to strength. I will mount up as it is on wings like an eagle. I'll be able to run and not be weary. I'll be able to walk and not faint. And yet we see so many today in the church that seem so weak and so frail. Don't, don't you sense the urgency of the day in which we live. You know, I was, um, I've mentioned quite a bit, usually on Wednesday nights, not as much on Sunday mornings, though I did do a topical message a few weeks ago, 
I entitled it Another Lazarus, and we talked about Israel, the nation of Israel, and prophetically speaking, God's plan for Israel. And, you know, as you watch these things, I, my heart goes out to the Jewish people. The Jewish people. I want you to understand. I want you to hear what I'm saying. The Jewish people. The Jewish people. Jewish people, not Israelites, i.e. just people living in Israel. Jewish people. My heart goes out to them. My heart goes out to them because a lot of these people, a lot of Jews are secular. Uh, they don't believe. They don't believe in Torah. They don't believe in the Bible. You know, they're not students of the Bible. They, many of them don't even believe in God, you know. Uh, many of them have bought into kind of a new age philosophy and that type of thing. But I think of how eye-opening it has been for them in the past few weeks, uh, students on campuses and people who are working in different places, and all of a sudden they're hearing this anti-Semitism and they're thinking to themselves, you're talking about me. I'm a Jew. Did you know I'm a Jew? You know, you're speaking about me. And on Wednesday night, I, I told the folks, I said, I want you to consider, what would it be like for us if all of a sudden there was this turn and what people felt, what they thought in their hearts, you know, they kind of conceal in their minds if they spoke it out loud. And they said something like, gas the Christians. We've got to eliminate the Christians from the face of the earth. I mean, you immediately you'd feel like, gosh, I, I work with you. I go to school with you. you, you what, you, ha you hate me because I'm a Christian? We have news now of those that have come, you know, that were, came across the border of Gaza into Israel, the kibbutz there. Uh, you know, kibbutz, I don't know if you're aware of kibbutz. Kibbutzes were set up when Israel began to resettle the land after 1948, and they're like a commune. Um, I've stayed in a few kibbutzes, and I think they're really, really cool places because it's a community type of thing. You know, you have your own little apartment or whatever. Usually a kibbutz has a particular uh, business that they do. Years ago, I stayed in one, and they were, at the time, this is way back in the 80s, they were inventing and developing the drip system uh, for irrigation. And so they usually have some sort of thing that makes money for the kibbutz, and they work in these areas. The kibbutz down in the south of Israel that was attacked, uh, this would be definitely a, a, an area where most of the people would be very sympathetic toward the Palestinians. In fact, most of the people that were at the music festival would have been sympathetic to the Palestinians. In fact, from what I understand, uh, that day they were going to let go all of these um, helium balloons, you know, so that they could float across the border to Gaza to kind of, you know, send their love and their good vibes, you know, and everything else. And they never had the opportunity because as first Hamas and then Palestinians were invited to come over and to do whatever you want to do to the Jews. And we now have, you know, accounts of uh, Palestinian men, not Hamas necessarily, just Palestinians, that were coming across, talking to their mother and father on the phone. I just killed 10 Jews with my own hand. I have their blood on my hands. Are you proud of me, mom? Are you proud of me, dad? 
It's Jews, it's not Israel. Well, I guess that has nothing to do with our teaching here today, but it's kind of the elephant in the room. Jesus, he says, loose him. Loose him. Let him go. Listen, some are bound up with uh, <laughs> weird thinking because it's not biblical thinking because you're not in the Bible. You say, well, why should we care about Israel? The church has replaced Israel. Oh, no, it hasn't. That is a lie. That's one of those doctrines of demons, by the way, that Paul warned us about. Replacement theology. The church hasn't, hasn't replaced Israel. And, and by the way, if you're a student of the Bible, you would not want to replace Israel. <laughs> the place that we have is the bride of Christ. Oh, it's so different. It's so rich. Israel will come to believe in their Messiah, Jesus, but only after going through horrific, horrific things. Some of the things that they've already gone through in the past few weeks, but, but even more than that, they've got a long, difficult, difficult road to hoe. Pray, if you have Jewish friends, share the gospel with them. But I think of people being bound up their mind, their thoughts. This issue, I've said it, I said it from the very beginning, this, this issue, this Israel-Palestine, Israel-Palestine, it will become an issue that will divide Christians. What side are you going to land on? It's not that we don't care about the Palestinian people. Do you know there are churches in, in, among the Palestinians? There are Christians among the Palestinians. Think of how hard it is for them living in an environment like that. There are Christians, there are pastors, there are ministries. Anyway, verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Now, of course, they believed in him, but at this point in time, their belief was limited. I mean, they didn't believe that Jesus was their savior. This is something that they would understand after the cross and after the resurrection and of course after the apostles began to preach Christ and 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 point to the scriptures i.e. the old testament and say look at he is the messiah he's the one to come you know I, isaiah spoke of the suffering of the messiah and they'd be able to say to those jewish people because remember the early church was made up of all jews all jews the early church until peter went to cornelius's house and then we begin to see the gospel going out just as Isaiah prophesied going out to the Gentiles and then of course it began to just take off among the Gentiles but the early church was made up of Jews but their belief at this point in time they simply believed you know he is the Messiah or he is from God I mean their understanding their belief is limited but it would become fuller as time went on but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. Guys, listen. You have some that see and they believe. You have others who see the same things and they go to the religious leaders and say, You guys got to do something you got to do something. What's the problem? He's doing signs. I want you to note, they weren't denying. They weren't saying it's trickery at this point in time. 
They're not saying, I don't know how he's doing it, but he's a fraud. They're not saying that at all. Where earlier they might have had ignorance you know, on, on their side, they might have been able to say, well, we, we just didn't know. There were things that he did. There were things that he said. We didn't understand it. We didn't get it. We didn't understand it at the time. But at this point in time, as far as John's gospel is concerned, it's like they realize these are legitimate. The things that he's doing, they're legitimate. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh, if only. Remember in the book of Acts, they said a similar thing. Everyone's going to go out to him. In fact, I think they said everyone has gone out to him. Oh, only if it was true. It goes on. It says that everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. At face value, you read it and I think to myself, were they afraid? You know, these religious leaders, they were the standard of holiness. This is why it's so intriguing on the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus would use the Pharisees. He'd use the religious leaders as an example of what not to do. Don't do like them. Don't pray like them. Don't give like them. Don't, you know. Your righteousness needs to succeed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. I mean, it would really cause, and it did cause the people to say, what are you talking about? They are the standard. He goes, no, they're not the standard. You know, guys, it's interesting when you look at this and you say, did they fear that you know, if everyone believed in Jesus, then the people wouldn't need them anymore. I can't wait till the church doesn't need pastors anymore. I like to say, my, my mom, she lived in California, and, you know, she came to faith in Christ in her 80s, toward the end of her life, and um, she started attending a church that was really close to where she lived, and it was uh, the church that Tom Hughes, some of you that are listening to Bible prophecy, you know who Tom Hughes is. So she attended his church and large church down there. And, um, and I used to say when I would, my mother was alive, I said, uh, you know, she, she has a great pastor, Tom Hughes. You should listen to his prophecy updates. And then when my mom went home to be with the Lord, then I began to say to people, my mom used to have a great pastor Tom Hughes but now she has the greatest pastor the greatest pastor and you know one day when we're in the presence of the Lord we're not going to have any need for pastors or teachers or for the equipping of the saints you know and all of that um, we will be in the presence of our Lord we will know uh, uh, we will know as we are known it's going to be so complete and so beautiful but if only they would have believed Commentators tell us that most likely what they were referring to when they said our place, take away our place and nation, is that they were afraid that the temple was going to be taken away. If everyone believes in Jesus, the, Ro the Romans are going to come in, they're going to destroy our temple, our place, and our nation. Now guys, Bible students, think of how ironic this is. What they feared came to pass. Not because everyone believed in Jesus, but because as a whole, the nation of Israel did not believe in Jesus. 
the temple was destroyed. What was it, 38 years, I think, 38 years, 36 years, I don't remember the exact number, after Jesus ascended into heaven, the temple was destroyed by the Romans, just as Jesus said it would be destroyed? It's ironic. The very thing they feared happened, but not for the reason they thought. Verse 49, and one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not for that, uh, not for that whole nation, uh, I'm sorry, and not that the whole nation perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he might gather together in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you guys understand what took place here? Caiaphas, it says he was the high priest that year. Actually, he was high priest for 11 years, but he was high priest that year that this took place. This is another thing that's so intriguing as a student of the Bible, when we studied the scriptures, do you know that Jesus could not have been born in any other time? Uh, Galatians, Paul goes into this, that at a point in time, everything had to line up. Uh, Jesus had to have been born when the Romans were on the earth. The Romans were the only ones that were going to crucify Jesus. No one else was going to crucify Jesus. They used to crucify people by putting them on a pole. They would not crucify him as we... Think of the Roman means of crucifixion. The crucifixion of the Romans, we know, could last for days. I don't remember. It's been a while since I've looked at it. But there was one fellow that was crucified. I think he was on the cross for something like 11 days before he died. Could you imagine that? Just hanging there, waiting to die. And of course, we know that when Jesus was there, he gave up his spirit. He died when... when when he wanted to die, he gave up his spirit. We also know that the other two men, one on his right and one on their left, they tried to speed the process up. That's why they broke their knees, uh, so that they couldn't breathe. So basically, they suffocated there on the cross. But you think of how all of this was happening. <coughs> Excuse me, Caiaphas was high priest. And because of his position, and John makes this clear, it wasn't because Caiaphas was a great man. It was because of his position. He opens his mouth and he prophesies. And he speaks. The, 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 in essence, the word of God. He's going to die for the nation. This is expedient for us. And of course, no one understood it. Caiaphas didn't understand what he was saying. You know, you wonder about those moments, those aha moments that come much later. Later. Caiaphas, what is it? His body's gone. His followers are saying that he was resurrected from the dead. What about the guard that was there? Didn't Pilate put a guard there? Yes, Pilate put a guard there, but the guard fled. There was something about an angel. They fled. They became like dead men, you know, and then they fled. So uh, 
Who rolled away the stone? I don't know. Two women said that they arrived there. The stone was already rolled away. Two or three or four. We're not sure how many women were actually there. But he's gone. It's, it's worse than that, Caiaphas. Some of his followers are claiming that they've seen him since his resurrection. I wonder if it was a ha aha moment for Caiaphas. Hmm. What, what did I say? What did I say on that day? Pilate. His wife comes to him. Have nothing to do with this innocent man. I had a dream. I, 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 I have nothing to do with him. I wash my hands of him. I wonder the aha moment. What do you mean he's gone? What do you mean his followers are gathered at Solomon's porch and they're preaching him as if he's alive? What do you mean that they say they saw him ascend into heaven? What do you mean? You wonder. I'll tell you. Don't wait for an aha moment. Place your faith in Christ now. None of us know how long we have. None of us knows what might come tomorrow, but I'm telling you, we need to place our faith in Christ because the Lord is wrapping things up just as the word of God said he would. The very things that we're watching, we don't know how all of this, you know, the war between Israel and, and Hamas right now. Uh, we're, you know, you guys are watching the same things I'm watching. We're waiting, we're kind of surprised that Hezbollah hasn't jumped into the mix of it. Iran, we know that Iran is really the power behind both of these two entities. We're watching these things. We're watching, we're watching our world. We have China in the region. We have Americans in the, in the region, uh, American military in the region. We have nation after nation. We have Iran threatening the US. I mean, just things are heating up, heating up, heating up. And, and we hear it, World War III, World War III, World War III. And you know what we know? You know what we can know for sure? That Israel will remain. How? Israel will not be pushed into the sea. Israel will not be, they will not leave their nation, their land, their country. Why? Because they have to be there. They will be there. They will rebuild their temple. Based upon what? Based upon the word of God. This is why we need to be students of the word of God. When Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, flee. He's not speaking to us in America. He's not speaking to us on Whidbey Island. He's speaking to, he's speaking to those in Israel at the time. Pray that it doesn't come uh, on the Sabbath. That means absolutely nothing to us. It means everything to a Jew living in Israel on the Sabbath. It's a big thing. This is part of the reason why there was this surprise that took place by this Hamas, you know, thing that happened. Because of a feast, because of Sabbath, they let down their guard. I'm sorry I get so off on these things. I just, I feel like I, I need to address the, the elephant in the room because otherwise, we just kind of come to church and we just sit and we go and we don't realize that we're, we're looking at a book that is alive. It is spiritually alive and it speaks of things that, were, uh, that are yet to take place. It's prophetic in nature. 
And as Bible students, we could study the scriptures and say, the prophets prophesied this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And here's the fulfillment of it, fulfillment of it, fulfillment. So God has a perfect track record. He reveals things before they happen so that when they happen, we may know that he is God. That's what he's doing. So it's like right now, I mean, we're watching things begin to wrap up. And it's like our opportunity, are we going to wake up and say, oh, Lord, Lord, save me. Say, help me, Lord. If I got a week, I want to live for you in this next week that I have. I just want to faithfully serve you this next week. If that's all I have, I, I want to serve you. Because, you know, guys, we have so much to look forward to in the Lord. Well, Caiaphas spoke these things, and I'll wrap up with this. Verse 53, then from that day, they plotted to put him to death. In John's gospel account, this was kind of the turning point. This was like the point of no return. He's a dead man. He is a dead man walking, as far as we're concerned. And so they, therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Now, guys, if we're not careful, we could read this and say, oh, Jesus must have been scared. That's why he didn't go into Jerusalem any longer. He must have been scared. You know, we know that in his incarnation, he was fully man, but he was also God. You know, he's fully God. I mean, you, you, we have this, this dynamic only happening in Jesus. And so his flesh, he must have been afraid at this point, and that's why he wasn't doing it. And I suggest to you, based simply upon what John has told us in his gospel account, the reason he no longer walked in Jerusalem is because his hour had not yet come. Could you imagine? I mean, we don't live like this. For us, things are constantly taking us by surprise. Oh, well, I didn't see that happening. Didn't know that was going to take place. Oh, wow. For Jesus, he knew precisely what was coming and when it was coming. Look what it goes on. It says, verse 56 uh, then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Could you imagine? That? I could kind of imagine them saying, he's not going to come. He knows that as soon as he shows his face here, we're seizing him. We're going to kill him. Because you know what? These arrogant men thought that they were going to stone him to death. I mean, they had tried on a number of occasions. The whole crucifixion, it wasn't like they're thinking, let's crucify him. You would think that they would realize, you know, maybe let's not crucify him because David prophetically spoke of crucifixion as if he himself was being crucified. And yet David knew nothing about this form of crucifixion because there were no Romans when he wrote this. But they couldn't put the pieces together. They figured, we're just going to eliminate them. We're going to get rid of them. We're going to do it. It's going to be on us. We're going to do it. And I imagine them just kind of, you know, maybe talking down Jesus. He's afraid. There's no way he's coming. Verse 57. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it and they, uh, that they might seize him. 
You guys come on up, please. Do you know why I could say with such boldness and assurance that Jesus was not afraid? Because of John chapter 12, Bible students. John chapter 11, it ends with, he's on the run, is he? He's hiding out, is he? He's afraid to go into Jerusalem. Really? Because in John chapter 12, he comes to the feast in the most public way possible. Guys, how many times had Jesus been to Jerusalem? I suggest that every time there was a feast, Jesus would go up to Jerusalem. But when he made his triumphal entry, you know, how often do we read, you know, where the Lord, he just doesn't want the attention. He's, you know, it's like, no, no, not now. And, you know, they wanted to take him, seize him, make him king. Remember all of that? No, no, no. And, and he's kind of escaping from that type of thing. And here it is. He makes his triumphal entry. And it's like he says to all of Israel, to all the pilgrims, to all the leadership, do you see me? I'm here. Your king comes riding on a donkey, lowly, on the colt of a donkey. Bible prophecy, it was being fulfilled before their very eyes. And we could look, and many times we do as Christians, we look and we say, what was wrong with them? Don't we do that? You read in Genesis and Exodus, and, and you just see God's provision you know, for the children of Israel and water out of a rock and bread that comes down from heaven. Wouldn't you love to have manna? I'd love to taste manna. I think in heaven we might be able to taste some manna. I don't know for sure. But but do you think you read it and you say, and I remember as a young Christian, I used to say, what's wrong with these people? I mean, they are so lame. They've got like a memory that's like this long. You know, God provides this, God does that, God provides this, we want meat, I'll give you meat. I'll give you more meat than you can handle. It's going to be coming out of your nose. Isn't that gross? You know, I'll give you meat. They go out. Have you ever hunted for quail? Oh, don't tell my wife. She loves quail. We had one nesting in our front yard uh, two summers ago. And she'd go out. She was like the mother of the mother. Tracy was. And it was fun to watch the little quail. But, but quail, you know, they just kind of run on the ground. And, but they didn't have to hunt. All they had to do is walk out and pick up the little quill and bring their little cute necks and de-wing them, you know, and, and eat and eat and eat. And, but we look at that and we say, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them? But there was a blindness. I say the same thing about the church today. What's wrong with us, Lord? What's wrong with your church, Lord? Why is it we can't even get church right? We can't even get a service right. We can't even get who stands in the pulpit and who teaches the word right. Why is it we can't get church leadership right? Why is it we can't, why, Lord? Why, Lord? Why, Lord? We have your word. Why can't we connect the dots, you know? The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the, you know, the Sanhedrin, you know, guys, they were willfully ignorant. 
you know, it's like I'm stupid on purpose. That was them. I refuse to see. I just, I, I don't want to see it. You know, guys, when we look at the scriptures, there is a temporary blindness over, here, over Israel now. There wasn't before the cross. There is now after the cross. It's a temporary blindness. That blindness will be removed and Israel will come to faith in Christ and their fullness will mean blessings beyond our wildest imagination. But we need to be people who take seriously the word of God. Amen. Please consider the importance of this. That we'd give ourselves to the study of the scripture and to prayer. There would be men and women who say, I, I want to know your word, Lord, because even if it's motivated by fear, Lord, I'm afraid. I don't, I, I, I'm concerned about what's happening in this world. And, and some people keep saying that it's found in, in your Bible. So, Lord, would you please help me to see it so that I could have peace, so that I could have an understanding of these things? Would you stand with me, please? Father, we pray that if there are any in this room or downstairs or watching, listening online, Lord, that have not placed their faith in you, Lord, would you please, by your spirit, bring conviction and the, the, the real sense of need, Lord. I think for many of us, I know for me, Lord, I said the, quote, sinner's prayer many, many times, never meant it, was never born again, but then there was that day and there was no denying it. And there was no necessarily sinner's prayer. There was just a genuine crying out to you to save me because I knew that I needed to be saved and forgiven and washed of my sins. We pray, Father, that there would not be one person in this room, in this building, online. We pray for our loved ones, Lord. We pray for our children, perhaps that are prodigals or Maybe some are married to a man or woman who really hasn't placed their faith in you, Lord. Please, by your spirit, convict. Bring them to you, Lord. We pray that many people would come to faith in you. And we pray, Lord, that we'd be a church, just like the book of Revelation says, that are saying, come, Lord, come. Come.